1: You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby?
2: (laughs) Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ. Hey! Okay, TJ, (laughs) I had such a great time last week. (laughs) Oh, yeah? Doing the the Gish scavenger hunt. It was so, (laughs) so much fun.
0: Well, we're... Yeah, so usually we do these like right on top of when we release them, but we're front loading a bunch of episodes right now. Because I'm I'm going on a cruise. Technically, when this drops, she will have just gotten back from a cruise. Yeah. Yep. So,
2: you know. To Alaska. Yeah. I will say, I do apologize. Uh, Upon editing the Dennis Wilson episode, I realized something... You you don't do it at all. I do it literally all the time. I have a mush mouth, and I will apologize because I will try to enunciate my words more as I'm telling the story because I realize like I
0: that's usually when I stop you. I'm like, say that again. No, even some of the ones that you didn't (laughs) kid,
2: like you didn't catch. Well,
0: I I just stop after a moment. I'm like, (laughs) all right, I'm gonna just let mush mouth roll.
2: So I'm gonna to try to enunciate a little bit more. No one said anything about it, but I can hear it, and so I know other people can hear it. But I know that I'm also more critical about myself, so I apologize. So TJ,
0: tell yeah. me, tell
2: me what this week has in store for us.
0: So this week, oh man, this week and the next. I know we've been keeping you in anticipation and not not telling you who we're doing, but I am gonna preface aside from just the mountain that. Of crazy that was my life last week. I've been attempting to do this research and it's been really hard. You know me as a performer. You know that this person is somebody that I really look up to, that I'm really close with, like spiritually I feel bonded and a kinship. So this was a really, really tough episode for me to, to research, but I'm really excited to share it with all of you. One of my top idols. This week we are doing in honor of the 50th anniversary of her performance at Woodstock, which actually would have been last weekend, um, but we went long on Dennis Wilson. We are doing Janis Joplin. Woo!
2: Yeah, I know what this this episode's done to you, so I'm really... This has
0: been a really, really rough episode. It has yeah, I can't me... wait. Like, anytime I had free time and should have been researching, I, like, ran away. I would sit down, start reading, and be like... Oh, look at that. My plants look like they need to be watered. Run away. Oh, hmm, maybe I should research a new recipe to make this weekend. Run away. Like just hiding from this episode. but
2: Can't hide from it.
0: Can't hide from it. It happened. You know, but so 50 years ago, last Saturday, she made her performance at the iconic Woodstock Festival. Um, I'm so excited. Like all of this month. There's been so much, like, 50th anniversary Woodstock stuff, and <sighs> if only. I'm a little too young to have been there, but I wish I would have been. All right, so so in case you didn't know, Janis Joplin was an American rock, soul, and blues singer-songwriter, and one of the most successful and widely known rock stars of her era. From JanisJoplin.com, I found this really great um, kind of quote or description to intro this episode she claimed the blues soul gospel country and rock with unquestionable authority and verve fearlessly inhabiting psychedelic guitar jams back porch roots and everything in between her volcanic performances left audiences stunned and speechless while her sexual magnetism worldwide demeanor and flamboyant style shattered every stereotype about female artists and essentially invented the rock mama paradigm janice's star rose fast burned bright, and burned out way too soon. This is her story. Born Janice Lynn Joplin in Port Arthur, Texas. Her mother was Dorothy Bonita East. She was a registrar at a business college, and her father was Seth Ward Joplin, and he was an engineer at Texaco. Janice was the oldest of three children. She had two younger siblings, Michael and Laura.
2: I want to know what they put in the water in Texas that just has... There's something in the water down there that they just make some of the best
0: musical artists. Well, yeah. There's a lot of soul down there. It's hard times, man. Hard times. lot of dust. That, too. The family belonged to the Churches of Christ denomination, if that makes it matters to you. <laughs> Her parents felt that Janice needed more attention than the other children, Her first interests were painting and poetry. And the reason for that, I should back up. Her parents felt like she needed more attention. She was kind of, she was an odd duck. She wasn't, she didn't fit the mold. So that would cause her to be a little raucous, a little rambunctious.
2: We see that a lot, though, with a lot of these stars, like Bobby Fuller, who was pretty raucous, and Lisa Lefty Lopez. You know, it just, it's like... They're so creative, and I don't know if a lot of people recognize the difference between creativity and just bad behavior.
0: Well, and until they figure out an outlet, an appropriate outlet to get it out, and what the, that outlet is and that purpose is for them to create, I mean, it, it can come out a little... It can be frustrating.
2: Yeah. It can be really, really frustrating when you when you have so much creativity. I definitely gave my mom some gray
0: hairs. Like,
2: oh, I gave my mom an entirely white know. head.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you I give still, me a white head. I still do. <laughs> <laughs> you give me a white head. <laughs> when
2: I met Will, he was a complete brunette. I bet <laughs> he him is. Now.
0: <laughs> I bet he is. Her first interests were painting and poetry, um, and she did some of each, but as a teenager, Joplin befriended a group of outcasts one of whom had albums by blues artists Bessie Smith, Ma Rainey, and Leadbelly, whom Joplin later credited with influencing her decision to become a singer. She began singing blues and folk music with friends at Thomas Jefferson High School. Joplin stated that she was ostracized and bullied in high school. As a teen, she became overweight and suffered from acne, leaving her with deep scars that required dermabrasion. Other kids at high school would routinely taunt her and call her names like And I'm sorry, these are direct quotes. These are not my words. Direct quotes. They would call her names like pig, freak, or creep. And she stated, I was a misfit. I read, I painted, I thought. After an unhappy childhood in a middle class family, Joplin graduated from high school in 1960 and attended Lamar State College of Technology in Beaumont, Texas for like one semester during the summer. Uh, There was an article I found by Rolling Stone, which amazing article, find it in the source notes because it's, it was a great article, Um, that it filled in. She actually apparently ran away for a short while, staying in Houston, Austin, Venice Beach, and San Francisco, singing and working various jobs. She returned to Austin in 1961 after being released from a hospital in San Francisco where she'd been under treatment for drugs. So this is quite early already. This is like when she's 19? Oh, wow. 18, 19 at this point. She then attended the University of Texas while working as a key punch operator to pay expenses before dropping out again to sing folk and blues around in Texas clubs. What is a key punch? Oh, sure. You asked me that. I looked up every other effing thing and you asked me what a key punch is. Yeah. It's her job. <laughs> I looked up every other thing and that's what you asked me? The campus newspaper, The Daily Texan, ran a profile of her in the issue dated July 27, 1962, headlined, She Dares to be Different. The article began, she goes barefooted when she feels like it, wears Levi's to class because they're more comfortable, and carries her auto harp with her everywhere she goes so that in case she gets the urge to break into song, it will be handy. Her name is Janis Joplin. And now here's something I actually did look up. An auto harp is part of the corded zither family. So it's kind of a handheld harp piano combo featuring a series of chord bars attached to dampers.
2: So it's one of those like weird sixties instruments, kind of.
0: It's actually like kind of cool looking.
2: <laughs> I don't know. If, it's like on the I begin don't know.
0: like. Well, like I say, it's kind of like a handheld piano. It's auto harp. Yeah, that's what they look like.
2: Oh, I had one of those growing up. Yeah, yeah. My parents used. It looks it like the, that. It literally like,
0: looks like a miniature piano that you can carry around with you. Yeah. But obviously, not as many keys.
2: My mom actually had an auto harp that she used for decoration. Yeah, in like on our hall tree.
0: <laughs> on a hall tree.
2: Yeah, the thing that's in the living room where you put your purse—that's a hall tree.
0: It looks like a coat rack to me. It's
2: A hall tree. Okay. It's the makes what makes it a hall tree is that it's got a a bench, a bench, storage underneath and storage up top. So it's okay. a hall tree.
0: Fair enough. I've never heard it called that. While playing her auto harp on the street with a couple other musicians um, named Powell St. John and Larry Wiggins, the trio were invited to try out at a place called Threadgills, which was a service station that had been converted into a bar featuring old time country music. In one of her first performances, she actually won she won two bottles of Lone Star beer, and the trio won a ten dollar prize in a talent show. <laughs> she credited. Ken Threadgill, the owner of the bar and an old-time Texas folk musician with giving her her start because of the time that she spent there performing. And, and technically she got paid. Yeah, she did get paid, technically. Uh, Threadgill kind of recalls in this article I found, actually though, she didn't go over so well around here. She was singing in a high, shrill bl- bluegrass kind of sound. Eventually somebody came around who put her on a coffeehouse circuit, and that was that, Threadgill said. And remember... In the 60s, coffee houses aren't like your local Starbucks or mom and pop mud shop. Like these are
2: places where you go and you might get a cup of coffee, but there's a place where you can exchange ideas and write and
0: was more like the beatnik scene. Yeah.
2: And there was a, you know, performers constantly, but it was like, it was like a hub. It was a place mm-hmm. for people to of like minds to like go and converse and like it was networking.
0: Yeah. While at UT, she performed with a folk trio called the Waller Creek Boys, which I think these were from two separate sources, but, you know, I tried. I think this was probably Powell and Larry with her for that trio, called the Waller Creek Boys, and frequently socialized with the staff of the campus humor magazine, The Texas Ranger. According to Freak Brothers cartoonist Gilbert Shelton, who befriended her, she used to sell the Texas Ranger, which contained some of Shelton's early comic books on the campus. So, probably another way for her to make a little bit of money. Joplin cultivated a rebellious manner and styled herself partly after her female blues heroines and partly after the beat poets. Her first song, What Good Can Drinkin' Do, was recorded on tape in December 1962 at the home of a fellow University of Texas student, which again, Just for context, because I know I've already mentioned beatniks and this is kind of the beatnik generation, like this is their jam. So the Beat Generation, in case you're not familiar, was a literary movement by a group of authors whose work explored and influenced American culture and politics in the post-war era. So the bulk of their work was published in the 50s and featured themes surrounding the rejection of standard values and materialism, making spiritual quests... Exploration of religions, explicit portrayals of the human condition, experimentation with drugs, and sexual liberation.
2: Man, I wish I was alive during
0: the 60s. Right? I mean, but I know some of them that were, and they just can't let it go, and it's not working out well for them now.
2: (laughs) Yeah, they're called deadheads.
0: Kind of, yeah. Or they long for those days again, and that's no longer socially acceptable. I mean, that being
2: said, like I mean, it wasn't
0: really socially acceptable then either. But they had their crowd.
2: Yeah, but that being said, like we we our our eighties nostalgia is through the freaking roof. Yeah, it is. And I was thinking about this as like, you know, I'm I'm about to turn forty, and so I grew up in the the eighties and the nineties. Those are like my formative years, and. I keep thinking about it and I'm like, you know, it was a, that was a great time. That was an awesome time. You know, it, it, for me, it was like, that's when the best music came out. That's when the best movies came out. That was when the, you know, we could leave our doors unlocked. We could ride our bikes down the street. You know, you knew that you didn't need a smartwatch to tell you when to come home because that was the streetlights. I see my
0: parents would argue that that was like, Back in when they were growing up,
2: but see the thing. Well, I grew up in a, <laughs> I grew up in a town where it was basically the fifties anyway. <laughs> well, fair enough. But, but then I look back and I think, okay, it was great for us as kids, right? It was great for us as kids, but for the adults, it wasn't so good. No, because you had all these social changes that were going on, and you had. You know the great fear of HIV that was happening. You had the Cold War. You had well, like, in the
0: sixties had their issues. Like but, every de- yeah. every decade has its own. But I am saying, too, as, sure.
2: as as a child, we look back on those times as fondness. But the adults that went through that were like they You have to think like they they see it differently than we do. Of course, because my mom views the fifties and the sixties when she was growing up that that was the best time for her. Right. And so, and I am looking now and I am like. Kids are going to grow up and think that this was the best time for them because Mm -hmm. they're going to have to face things that we never had to face as kids, and that we didn't have to face when we were here. So it's just, I was actually, these are things I think about when I am taking a shower. (laughs)
0: Fair enough. (laughs) It's just, well, no, it's just, it's just a cycle. Like every generation thinks that their generation is the best generation, like, or they long for when they were younger and it was easier. But at the at the same time, it that's all relative.
2: Yeah. And that's, that's kind of what I'm saying, yeah. isn't it? Like, now we look at all the things that are happening now.
0: Yeah. You
2: know, the political landscape, the musical landscape, where artists are pushing the boundaries of art and people who are thinking outside the yeah. box. And, you know, we have these it's beautiful subjective. things. Yeah. It, we have these beautiful things and we have these terrible things that are happening. But, you know, the kids now will look back on this time as being a fond time for them because they didn't have to face what we're having to face as
0: adults. Right. All right. Anyways, so Beat Generation, you know, and some names that might be familiar to you that are considered integral members to that movement were like Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, and William S. Burroughs. Might be some names that you know, but weren't sure. Amazing,
2: amazing writers. Yes. Amazing writers. On the Road, Jack Kerouac's book, just phenomenal.
0: So Janice left Texas in January of 1963, hitchhiking with her friend Chet Helms to North Beach, San Francisco. As to why, she recalled, just to get away because my head was in a much different place. And I want you just to burn in the name Chet Helms for later. He comes up frequently, well, semi-frequently, but he's important to the story. So keep that name in mind.
2: Noted. Chet
0: Chet Helms. (laughs) If you're a Janis Joplin fan and you do some digging or you just have a mild interest that you do some digging, you may have heard some rumors regarding her personal life and relationships. Joplin's significant relationships with men included ones with Peter DeBlanc, Country Joe McDonald, who wrote the song Janis at her request, uh, David George Niehaus, Chris Christopherson and Seth Morgan. Whoa, 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 whoa.
2: She hooked up with Chris Christopherson?
0: Yes. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. What? I'll get to it. I don't touch on it that much, but it, it does come up because obviously there is a significant uh connection there. So which will all come into play. All in due time, dear heart. I actually have it written here, all of whom we'll touch upon throughout her story. <laughs> so don't get ahead of yourself. But I needed that to intro this next bit. Fair. <laughs> calm your britches, girl. <laughs> but
2: did you say calm your britches? I did.
0: I did. Call my him. my britches are calm. I don't know. They got pretty, pretty antsy there when I said Chris Christopherson. I get,
2: I I know he's still alive, but I just want to talk about him all the time. Me too.
0: <laughs> I just want to hang out with him. He had such. He should come to the gym and help me train for my wedding because he is still ripped. Oh, uh, I, if we have to pick one person to go to
2: the gym, I'm picking Nicolas Cage. You I want... always pick Nicolas Cage.
0: I just want him to come to You don't my... want to go to the gym with Jensen Eccles?
2: No, because then I'd be shamed. Oh. Because of my little... My but
0: little... he can spot you.
2: Oh, I can spot him too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. So all of these guys we'll touch on throughout the story. Uh, but she also had relationships with women. During her first stint in San Francisco in 1963, Joplin met and briefly lived with Jay Whitaker an African-American woman whom she had met while playing pool at the bar, Gino and Carlo in North Beach. Whitaker broke off their relationship because of Joplin's hard drug use and sexual relationships with other people. Whitaker was first identified by name in connection with Joplin in 1999. Did you want to interject something?
2: So, I mean, like, her her drug issues... Oh, yeah, they started young, remember? They started young, and it doesn't seem like she's let up yet.
0: She kind of goes back and forth like when she went back to Texas it let up because she just gotten out of a drug rehabilitation uh, center. Kind of a wasn't a rehab center but she got she had just gotten out of a drug program and went back to Texas in 61. And then so it started very early and she kind of bounces back and forth a little bit on it.
2: Did they ever say like how she got introduced into that that culture into the drug culture?
0: No. They don't really mention it too much in what I found. It doesn't mean it's not out there. It just means I have limited time. Yeah. <laughs> and limited resources within that time frame. So, um, yeah, I didn't find anything about how she got into it. I'm assuming I mean, I mean, I'm assuming I... she got into it while she was while she when she ran away the first time, you know, and ended up in the music scene and out, you know. Yeah, I mean Venice Beach and San Francisco. I think it was just like the lifestyle at that time,
2: probably probably contributed a lot to it. Just because, you know, it was the culture at the time, and
0: and it seems to be the heroin is like a big one for her. I don't think she's on heroin at this time, but some of these drugs are highly addictive, like. So you try it once, and you can, depending on who you are, you can really, really go down that rabbit hole really fast.
2: And correct me if I'm wrong, but at this point, LSD is still legal. It might be. I think it. I think it is. Early sixties, I think it was legal.
0: Yeah, it could be. So, and it doesn't even say what drug she is using at this time. It just says that they broke off because of her hard drug use. Um. <clears throat> but she also had sexual relationships with other partners, too. She wasn't exclusive to Whitaker. Yeah, so
2: Whitaker bails because, for lack of a better term, she's kind of a mess. Kind of, yeah. Okay.
0: I mean, I don't like to say that, but yeah. Kind of. She's She's got some stuff to do, figure out.
2: I'm kind of a mess, but you
0: still love but me. But she's young. She's still young. I mean, this is 63 and she she was born in 43, so she's 20 years old. Yeah. Like, you know.
2: Yeah, I did a lot of dumb stuff when I was a kid, too. Okay, I got it. Well, yeah, and at this point, also, I believe. I do no dumb
0: things ever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Says no one, or oh. no one can ever <laughs> say that, yep. honestly, that they've never done dumb things. Come on. Whitaker was first identified by name in connection with Joplin in 1999 when Alice Eccles's biography, Scars of Sweet Paradise, was published. In 1963, Joplin was arrested in San Francisco for shoplifting. During the two years that followed, her drug use increased and she acquired a reputation as a speed freak and occasional heroin user. So she is starting to use heroin now and apparently is a speed freak. She also used other psychoactive drugs and was a heavy drinker throughout her career. Her favorite alcoholic beverage was Southern Comfort, which I had some of that while I was researching for this because it actually happened to be one of my early drinks. But um, yeah, no, gross. Can't do it. It's too sweet.
2: My favorite liquor is actually uh, Crystal Skull Vodka. Crystal Skull Vodka? Yep, because it's created by Dan Aykroyd. Okay. And it's really clean, and it's very tasty, and it's based on the Crystal Skulls of right of lore. Right. And uh, he's big. He's a big conspiracy theory person. There you and, go. And he loves all things paranormal. And so I feel like we both kind of gravitated to <laughs> the drink of
0: no. what we Well, love. the SoCo thing for me was complete, like, fluke thing. I'm not going to go into that. Um, I also haven't drank for like four <laughs> but years. But I just so. I had one while I was doing my research and I'm like this is really sweet. I mean I mixed it with Diet Coke. Maybe that's probably part of the problem. Like, Because SoCo is pretty sweet on its own anyways.
2: I don't understand how
0: people a, can drink. Isn't it like when you're doing certain drugs like isn't like sugar a thing? Like um, I think okay, heroin like I, sugar is a thing right?
2: I don't I knew with ecstasy, people would drink orange juice, because that would kind of kick up your high, right? And I'm not, I'm I'm not sure. Like, I, I don't with heroin. I'm not sure. Mm. I, I was know, just curious. Everything, everything I know about heroin, I learned from train spotting. <laughs> <Fair laughs> so, enough. so nothing, so
0: literally nothing. <laughs> Fair enough. In 1964, uh, Joplin's still in San Francisco. She met future. Jefferson Airplane guitarist Jorma Kalkonen and recorded a number of blues standards, which incidentally featured Jorma's wife, Margareta, using a typewriter in the background. This session included seven tracks, Typewriter Talk, Trouble in Mind, Kansas City Blues, Hesitation Blues, Nobody Knows You When You're Down and Out, Daddy, 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 and Long Black Train Blues, and was released long after Joplin's death as the boot leg album the typewriter tape
2: say that five times fast
0: no thank you it's hard enough saying it once in may 1965 joplin's friends noticing the detrimental effects on her from regularly injecting methamphetamine persuaded her to return to port arthur she was described at this point as being skeletal and emaciated we I mean, remember she been previously teased for being overweight so this is a drastic change in her that her friends are like whoa 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 like slow down girl during that month her friends threw her a bus fare party so she could return to her parents in texas five years later joplin told rolling stone magazine writer david dalton the following about her first stint in san francisco i didn't have many friends and i didn't like the ones i had like Ouch. They threw you a bus fare party. Back in Port Arthur in the spring of 1965, after Joplin's parents noticed her weight of only 88 pounds. 88 pounds. 40 kilograms. That's like 88 two, pounds. That's like,
2: that's like half of me.
0: Yeah. God. She was only 88 pounds. She changed her lifestyle. She avoided drugs and alcohol, adopted a beehive hairdo, which I just can't imagine Janice running around with a beehive, but all right, and enrolled as an anthropology major at Lamar University in nearby Beaumont, Texas. During her time at Lamar, she commuted to Austin to sing solo, accompanying herself on acoustic guitar. One of her performances was at a benefit by local musicians for Texas bluesman Mance Linscombe, who was suffering with ill health. Joplin became engaged to Peter de Blanc in the fall of 1965. She had begun a relationship with him toward the end of her first stint in San Francisco. Now living in New York where he worked with IBM computers, which such a far cry from the life that she was living in San Francisco, I feel like, but whatever. He visited her to ask her father for her hand in marriage. Joplin and her mother began planning the wedding but DeBlanc, who traveled frequently, ended the engagement soon afterwards. Which I'm not sure why. That was all I saw about it. In 1965 and 1966, Joplin commuted from her family's Port Arthur home to Beaumont, Texas, where she had regular sessions with a psychiatric social worker named Bernard Giarritano. Giarritano. I'm going to call him Bernard because I'm not going to keep saying this name because that's probably wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so she started working with Bernard at a counseling agency that was funded by the United Fund, which later changed its name to United Way. So that's why. Oh, yeah. I, I yeah. know them. Yeah. United Way. Interviewed by a biographer Myra Friedman after his client's death, Bernard said that Joplin had been baffled by how she could pursue a professional career as a singer without relapsing into drugs and her drug-related memories from immediately prior to returning to Port Arthur continued to frighten her. Joplin sometimes brought an acoustic guitar with her to her sessions with Bernard and people in other offices within the building could hear her singing, which I wish I was in that building. I wish I was in that building with her. It would be so cool. Um, Yeah. Bernard tried, to reass- Bernard tried to reassure her that she did not have to use narcotics in order to succeed in the music business. He also said that if she were to avoid singing professionally, she would have to become a key punch operator, as she'd done a few years earlier, or a secretary, and then a wife and mother, and she would have to become very similar to all the other women in Port Arthur. Janice also spoke to Bernard about her relationships with women. Um, Myra Friedman commented on, in her original version of the biography Buried Alive from 1973, given the near-infinite potentials of infancy, (sighs) given the near-infinite potentials of infancy, it is really impossible to make generalizations about what lies behind sexual practices. This, however, is probable. To become clearly homosexual, to make the choice that one honestly prefers relations with one's own sex, no matter the origins of such preference, requires a certain integration, a stability of psychic development, a tidiness of personality, organization. The ridicule and humiliation that took place at that most delicate period in Joplin's early teens, her own inability to surmount the obstacle to regular growth, devastated her a great deal more than most people comprehended. Janice was not heir to an ego so cohesive as to permit her an identity one way or the other. She was, as Mr. Giarratano put it, diffused, spewing, splattering, splaying all over without a center to hold. That had as much to do with her original use of of drugs as did the critical component of guilt and its multiplicity of sources above and beyond the contribution made by her relationships with women. Were she so simple as the lesbian Were she so simple as the lesbians wished her to be, or so free as her associates imagined? So, basically what she's saying is, this is not a simple thing. Her drug use was stemmed from a lot of different things. She was struggling with some really complicated ideas and problems that a lot of people struggle with still today. But she's doing it back coming from a very conservative family, from a very conservative area of the country, in a very conservative time where this stuff, the counterculture movement is there, and it exists, but it's not readily accepted. Approximately a year before Joplin joined Big Brother and the Holding Company, she recorded seven studio tracks with her acoustic guitar. Among the songs she recorded were her original composition for the song Turtle Blues and an alternate version of... Codeine by Buffy St. Marie. These tracks um, by the way a little side note. These tracks were later issued as a new album in 1995 titled This Is Janis Joplin 1965 released by James Gurley. Originally the tracks only included Janis and her guitar but a full band was added for the commercial release. The original tracks however without the full band added have since been released on the nine-disc compilation "Blow All My Blues Away" in 2012, with the exception of her version of coding that still had the backing band that James Gurley added for his album.
2: Why did Why did somebody feel the need to George Lucas? I don't know her original music. I
0: have no idea. Maybe I don't know. They were trying something. Ugh. <laughs> In 1966, Joplin's bluesy vocal style attracted the attention of San Francisco-based psychedelic rock band Big Brother and The Holding Company, which had gained some renown among the nascent hippie community in Haight-Ashbury. <laughs> Love it. She was recruited to join the group by Chet Helms. Remember the name? Chet Helms. Oh, he came back. I'm sorry, who was Chet Helms? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, so he's now, Chet Helms was there. He is now a promoter and was managing Big Brother at the time. Helms sent his friend Travis Rivers to find Joplin in Austin, Texas, where she had been performing with her acoustic guitar and to accompany her back to San Francisco. Aware of her previous nightmare with drug addiction in San Francisco, Rivers insisted that she inform her parents face-to-face of her plans, and then he drove her from Austin to Port Arthur. He waited in his car while she talked with her startled parents before they began their long drive to San Francisco. Because the first
2: time she ran away, like she just disappeared, right?
0: She ran away, and then she came back. Then I don't know if they knew she was going the second time, and then she came back. (laughs) <laughs> so she basically bounced back and forth between Texas and San Francisco like west coast San Francisco for a few years
2: I do like the idea though that he's just like no if we're going you have to tell your parents they have to know I I do like that
0: well yeah that was nice or maybe she ran away twice both times she ran away maybe I don't know but regardless it's good that they knew this time <laughs> Joplin joined Big Brother on June 4th, 1966. Her first public performance with them was at the Avalon Ballroom in San Francisco, which they played at regularly. In an interview in 1968, so this is a few years after she started with him, I just wanted to kind of put it in here instead of where it belongs. Uh, first of all, I don't know when this interview was given, just 1968, and, uh, but also just for point of reference. She described the change of her performance between when she was singing solo and when she joined Big Brother. And quote, Chet told me Big Brother was looking for a chick singer, so I thought I'd give it a try. I don't know what happened. I just exploded. I'd never sung like that before. I stood still and I sang simple. But you can't sing like that in front of a rock band. All that rhythm and volume going. You have to sing loud and move wild with all that in the back of you. It happened the first time, but then I got turned on at Otis Redding, and I just got into it more than ever. Now I don't know how to perform any other way. I've tried cooling myself and not screaming, and I've walked off feeling like nothing. So essentially, as she explains it, like she used to just kind of stand there and sing her pretty little song, but then once she got all the band behind her, which I totally get this, I totally get it, I get it. Once you get the band behind you, she was a whole other, it's a whole other level. So in June, so she's gone off back to San Francisco. She's with Big Brother. She's trying to still stay clean. So in June, Joplin is photographed at an outdoor concert in San Francisco that celebrated the summer solstice, which, how fun is that? The image, which was later published in two books by David Dalton, shows her before she relapsed into drugs. Due to persistent persuading by keyboardist and close friend Steven Ryder, Joplin avoided drugs for several weeks in joining bandmate Dave Getz to promise that using needles would not be allowed in their rehearsal space, her apartment, or in the homes of her bandmates whom she visited. When a visitor injected drugs in front of Joplin and Getz, Joplin angrily reminded Getz that he had broken his promise. So just as a little fun fact... Uh, a San, one of the San Francisco concerts from that summer in 66 was recorded and released in the 1984 album Cheaper Thrills not to be confused with cheap thrills cheaper thrills in July all five, all five bandmates and guitarist James Gurley's wife Nancy moved to a house in Lagunitas, California where they lived communally they often partied with the Grateful Dead who lived less than two miles away She had a short relationship and a longer friendship with founding member Ron Pigpen McKernan. The band went to Chicago for a four-week engagement in August 1966, then found themselves stranded after the promoter ran out of money when their concerts did not attract the expected audience levels, and he was unable to pay them. Under the circumstances, the band signed with to Bob Shads record label Mainstream Records, and recordings for the label took place in Chicago in September. These recordings were not satisfactory, and the band returned to San Francisco, continuing to perform live, including at the Love Pageant Rally. The band recorded two tracks, Blind Man and All Is Loneliness, in Los Angeles, and these were released by Mainstream as a single, which did not sell well. In late 1966, Big Brother switched managers from Chet Helms to Julius Carpen after a few instances of differing opinions, <laughs> including the Chicago stuff. And yeah, that's uh, there's more information about the Chicago thing in the Rolling Stones article. On November of 1966, when Big Brother performed at a San Francisco venue called The Matrix, Janice would meet Peggy Caserta, which would be the start of an ongoing off-and-on romantic relationship. Caserta was one of 15 people in the audience. At the time, Caserta ran a successful clothing boutique in the Haight-Ashbury. Approximately a month after Caserta attended the concert, Joplin visited her boutique and said she could not afford to buy a pair of jeans that was for sale. Caserta took pity on her and gave her a pair for free. Their friendship would be platonic for more than a year at that po- after that. But, again, that name is going to come up a lot. After playing at a happening, that's in quotations, I don't know what a happening is. I'm assuming it's kind of like a party, kind of like a jam, kind of like a gathering.
2: Yeah, it sounds like a jam session.
0: Yeah, it's just kind of, it happened. It's a happening.
2: Interestingly enough, there is a song called The Happening. Yes. That was done in the 60s.
0: Yes. So they played at a happening in Stanford in early December 1966. The band traveled back to Los Angeles to record 10 tracks between December 12th and December 14th, produced by Bob Shad from Mainstream Records, which appeared on the band's debut album in August of 1967. One of Joplin's earliest major performances in 1967 was at the Montreal Rock Dance, a counterculture musical event held on January 29th at the Avalon Ballroom by the San Francisco Hare Krishna Temple. There he is again. Yeah. Oh, no, it's the Hare Krishna. This is the
2: Maharishi is the one I was thinking. Yeah. Of. Never mind.
0: Maharishi is the one that you were talking about. Yeah. This isn't the, this isn't Dennis Wilson's Maharishi. This is the Swami. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> there is so much to keep track of in this the is 60s. Hari's, this is Hare Krishna. This is the Swami. Those
2: are the guys that hang out at the airport, right? Yes. Okay.
0: The event was an opportunity for its founder... I I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try. I'm going to try really hard here. For its founder Bhakti Vedanta Swami to address a wider public. You tried. I tried. <laughs> I tried really hard. I'm sorry guys. I'm I would be really impressed to know if I said it right. Let us know on social. Janice Chaplin and Big Brother performed there along with the Swami, Allen Ginsberg, again for the, from the Beatnik movement, yeah. Moby Grape, and the Grateful Dead for free. They, played, they all played for free with all proceeds donated to the Krishna Temple. And um, to get a clearer picture of this event, the Swami... Ginsburg and LSD promoters Timothy Leary and Augustus Owsley Stanley. Augustus Owsley Stanley led the singing of the Hare Krishna mantra on stage. The mantra rock dance concert was later called the Ultimate High, and the major spiritual event of the San Francisco hippie era. Just to get an idea of this party. This event.
2: Again, something I would have really liked to have been in the room for.
0: (laughs) I think it could have been fun. Oh, man. I don't know if I would have enjoyed it, though. I don't know. I don't know. If I was back in the 60s, I don't know if I would have. I I might have played. Sorry, Mom. In early 1967, Joplin met Country Joe McDonald of the group Country Joe and the Fish. It These band names problems. Oh, no, just the. Oh no! Names. Now you're in the hippie era. We're we're leaving you yuppies behind with your
2: yacht rock is amazing. No, you will leave, leave me alone. We're
0: leaving you yuppies <laughs> behind. Yuppies is, haven't this been is invented all about the yet. Hippies.
2: Yuppies haven't been invented yet. The hippies became the yuppies.
0: Oh no. Yeah.
2: Wait till we get to the eighties.
0: No. Well then, what are you calling all the 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 little and the high tones? That's what I'm calling yuppies.
2: No, no. Yuppie is, this is one of the few times where I'll tell you just flat out you're wrong. Yuppie was young upstart kids in the 1980s who were embracing technology and the idea that greed is good. Ew. Yeah. That's what a yuppie is. It's the 1980s, like, look at any movie like Wall Street or even like American Psycho. He I just is thought yuppie. it was a
0: slang term for lame. No, oh,
2: they're called squares.
0: Fine, whatever. Anyways, moving on. <laughs> so Joplin and Country Joe McDonald lived together as a couple for a few months. Joplin and Big Brother began playing clubs in San Francisco, at the Fillmore West, Winterland, and the Avalon Ballroom. They also played at the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles, as well as in Seattle, Washington, Vancouver, British Columbia, the Psychedelic Supermarket in Boston. (laughs) I love that. Oh, man. (laughs) And the Golden Bear Club in Huntington Beach, California. (laughs) The Psychedelic (laughs) Supermarket. I dig it. All I can think is they're just rows
2: of Gatorade (laughs) and orange juice. What? And then a disco.
0: Was Gatorade a thing back then? No, I don't I, I don't know. No, think I so. no,
2: it was created by a. it was created by the Florida the Florida football team as a hydration. <laughs> okay. Fair. So oh, I don't that, oh is that why it's called Gatorade? Gatorade? Yeah. Ah, <laughs>
0: I didn't know that
2: yeah i think it was like florida (laughs) state university or something like that created it for their football players because oh that's totally cool because with their environment like just water wasn't hydrating them and giving them enough right uh, you know electrolytes and things like that that they need to recover so they actually like took it to the school and they were like okay we'll just add this stuff and then we'll make it a flavor and it'll be better for your athletes
0: cool that's good to know all right and or drunk people.
2: Dropping some rando knowledge on people.
0: I mean, it's super helpful if you're hungover.
2: Yep, yes it is.
0: <laughs> As well, you know, just All I'm just saying. This is an episode of, of On Janice. All right, leave me alone. So just briefly kind of explaining the Monterey Pop Festival. The Monterey Inter- International Pop Festival is the technical name. It was a three-day concert event held between June 16th through June 18th in 1967 at the Monterey County Fairgrounds in, you guessed it, Monterey, California. The festival embodied the theme of California as a focal point for the counterculture movement and is widely regarded as one of the beginnings of the Summer of Love. (laughs) I'm sorry. I just realized something. What? This
2: whole time for some reason I've been thinking that Monterey was in
0: Canada. That's Montreal. <laughs> you nerd. I just got Canada on
2: the brain. God.
0: Well then you really should have reacted when I said that it was at the Monterey County fairgrounds and you guessed it, Monterey, California. I was I was you looking at you were not the, paying attention. I was looking at, at my moment. Google sheet, I'm yeah, sorry. Exactly. Looking at our Excel spreadsheet. So because Monterey was widely promoted and heavily attended, featured historic musical performances, and was the subject of a popular theatrical documentary film, it became an inspiration and a template for all future music festivals, including the iconic Woodstock Festival two years later.
2: I was going to ask because there is a... I know this one better than the the Monterey one, but there is an iconic documentary about Woodstock and so I'm wondering if the I'm wondering if those documentarians looked at the template for Monterey and said well let's do this a little differently but I like this idea because I've never seen the one for Monterey but I have seen the Woodstock one
0: you haven't seen it
2: Mm -mm. oh is it from the Canadian film board no (laughs) it's not
0: (laughs) (laughs) funny funny enough it's not from the Canadian Film <laughs> Board. Uh, no, so yeah, they probably did. But honestly, there was a lot of documentaries. Almost every like major concert or festival that they played, there was a documentary made. Like they were just documenting <laughs> pretty much anytime somebody performed. At this point, they're videoing it. The Rolling Stone, like, so more on. Just to quote on the festival, Rolling Stone publisher Jan Wenner quoted as saying, Monterey was the nexus. It sprang from what the Beatles began and from it sprang what followed. So like this is a critical, like she's saying this is a critical point. This is, this was a major, major, major moment in history. And I would have loved to be there. As for the historic performances that I mentioned, the festival is remembered for the first major American appearances by the Jimi Hendrix Experience, The Who, Ravi Shankar, and Otis Redding, as well as the first large-scale public performances of, of course, Janis Joplin and the Big-, and Big Brother and the Holding Company. Or Janis, am sorry. As well as the first large-scale public performances of... Janis Joplin with Big Brother and the Holding Company. I will say,
2: I have seen The Who in concert, and it was awesome.
0: Yeah. I mean, so yeah, The Who was there, but then you have all these other ones with Jimi Hendrix, and you have Janis Joplin's first performance there with Big Brother, and you have Otis Redding, and you have, you know, then you have other notable performances, which included Jefferson Airplane and Grateful Dead. The Animals were there. Which House of the Rising Sun, most notable for them, uh, and the Mamas and the Papas played there too, which will likely, we mentioned, we'll probably do another short a short set just specifically on this festival, um, because there was a lot there. But it's, I just wanted to note that one of the festival planners was actually John Phillips, of the Mamas and the Papas.
2: Oh wow! Yeah, my question is. How high? What do you mean? Was every single person at that, <laughs> that festival? Probably very.
0: So at the festival, Big Brother and The Holding Company actually ended up playing two sets. One on Saturday and an impromptu set on Sunday. Two songs from Big Brother's Sunday set at Monterey were filmed for D.A. Punabaker's documentary film entitled Monterey Pop. Combination of the two and a version of Big Mama Thornton's Ball and Chain. For the fashion lovers out there, I figured I'd include this because it was in in the Wikipedia page, so eh, whatever, if you dig it, you dig it. She was seen wearing an expensive gold tunic dress with matching pants. They were created for her by San Francisco clothing designer Colin Rose. Their first set, this is just a little fun fact more on the fashion thing, their first set on Saturday was not filmed, though it was audio recorded. And some sources, including a Joplin biography by Ellis Ambern, claims that she was dressed in thrift store hippie clothes or secondhand Victorian clothes during the band's Saturday set, but still photographs did not appear to have survived. So I know you like the clothes, so I figured I'd throw that in for you.
2: You know I love the clothes of the 60s.
0: <laughs> I know.
2: And I, like, the minute that you said that, I'm like, I... I I feel like I know exactly what she was wearing.
0: So in the film, you can see actually during Joplin's performance of Ball and Chain, Pennebaker, the documentary filmmaker, inserted two cutaway shots of Cass Elliot from The Mamas and the Papas seated in the audience during her performance of Ball and Chain. One in the middle of her song as Cass Elliot's eyes covered by sunglasses are fixed on Janis Joplin and also a shot during the applause as she silently mouths, oh, wow, while looking at the person seated next to her.
2: That's awesome.
0: So, and I kind of have a little side note on this because apparently some people are arguing (laughs) About this, that it's not really Cass Elliot's reaction to Janis Joplin's performance, because Elliot and the audience are seen in sunlight, but Sunday's Big Brother performance was filmed in the evening. An explanation has come from Big Brother's road manager John Byron Cook, who remembers that Pennebaker discreetly filmed the audience, including Cass Elliot during Big Brother's Saturday performance when he was not allowed to point the camera at the band. The prohibition of Pennebaker from filming on Saturday afternoon came from Big Brother's manager Julius Carpin. The band had a bitter argument with Carpin and overruled him as they prepared for their second set that the festival organizers had added on the spur of the moment. I don't know, but they didn't like it. The band did not care for this. Backstage at the festival, they also they became acquainted with New York-based talent manager Al- Albert Grossman, but did not sign with him until several months after this show at Monterey Pop, um, at which point they fired Carpin. I'm guessing there was some other issues in there as well.
2: So they didn't Carpin Diem? No. They <laughs> Carpin Donum. Yeah. <laughs> That was a pun assist. Congratulations.
0: (laughs) Only, so getting kind of back to the documentary part of it, only Ball and Chain was included in the Monterey Pop film that was released to cinemas throughout the United States um, between 1968 and 69. I found conflicting dates on that. And shown on television in the 1970s. Those who did not attend the Monterey Pop Festival saw the band's performance of combination of the two for the first time in 2002 when the Criterion Collection released the box set. Well, now I have a new thing I have to buy. Yep. Their performances at Monterey Pop were extremely well-received, obviously, and widely acknowledged as the show that broke Janice into stardom. The band's debut album Big Brother and the Holding Company was released by Mainstream Records in August 1967, shortly after the group's breakthrough appearance in June at the Monterey Pop Festival. Two tracks, Cuckoo and The Last Time, were released separately as singles, while the tracks from the previous single Blind Man and All His Loneliness were added to the remaining eight tracks for the full album release. So Monterey Pop Festival happened. Columbia decided, hey, we want to sign you. They already have this album with Mainstream. So now when Columbia Records took over the band's contract based on that Monterey Pop performance, and re-released the album, they included Cuckoo and The Last Time and and then changed the cover to include featuring Janis Joplin on the cover. Wait, no, let me fix that. And put featuring Janis Joplin on the cover. The debut album spawned four minor hits with the singles Down On Me, a traditional song arranged by Joplin, Bye Bye Baby, Call On Me, and Cuckoo, on all of which Joplin sang lead vocals. For the remainder of 1967, even after Big Brother signed with Albert Grossman, they performed mainly in California, which Albert Grossman was, remember, New York. So they stayed pretty much West Coast. On February 16th, 1968, the group began its first East Coast tour in Philadelphia. So we finished 67 on the West Coast, now early in 68. We're headed to the east coast. Started in Philadelphia and the following day gave their performance gave their first performance rather in New York City at the Anderson Theater. On April 7th, 1968, the last day of their east coast tour, Joplin and Big Brother performed with Jimi Hendrix, Buddy Guy, Joni Mitchell, Richie Havens, Paul Butterfield, and Elvin Bishop at the Wake for Martin Luther King Jr. concert in New York. It's during this East Coast tour, because remember, we talked about Peggy Caserta or Caserta earlier, and I mentioned they remained friends for a year. They were strictly platonic for a year. So, But during the East Coast tour, Janice's relationship with Caserta moved to the next level, Caserta was in love with big brother guitarist Sam Andrew, and sometime during the first half of 1968, when they were on their East Coast tour, she traveled from San Francisco to New York to flirt with him. I think that's being polite. He did not he did not want a serious relationship with her, and Joplin sympathized with Caserta's disappointment. <laughs> Wikipedia was so polite. (laughs) All the raucous, raunchy stuff came from other sources. Live at Wonderland 68, recorded at the Winterland Ballroom on April 12th and 13th, 1968, and features... Right? Yeah. And features Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company at the height of their mutual career working through a selection of tracks from their albums. A recording became available to the public for the first time in 1998 when Sony Music Entertainment released the compact disc. One month after the Winterland concert, Owsley Stanley recorded them at the Carousel Ballroom, released in 2012 as Live at the Carousel Ballroom 1968. Very original titles, y'all. In April 1968, shortly after Janice hit New York for the first time, she told writer Nat Hentoff... I've never seemed to be able to control my feelings, to keep them down. My mother would try to get me to be like everybody else, and I never would. But before getting into this band, it tore my life apart. When you feel that much, you have super horrible downs. I was always victim to myself. Now, though, I've made feeling work for me. Maybe I won't last as long as other singers, but I think you can destroy your now by worrying about tomorrow. If I hold back, I'm no good now, and I'd rather be good sometimes than holding back all the time. Like a lot of my generation and younger, we look back at our parents and see how they gave up and compromised and wound up with very little. Man, if it hadn't been for the music, I probably would have done myself in. On July 31st, 1968, Joplin made her first nationwide television appearance when the band performed on This Morning an ABC daytime 90-minute variety show, at the time hosted by Dick Cavett. Shortly thereafter, network employees wiped the videotape, though the audio survives. And we discussed this practice briefly during the Sam Cooke episodes. I don't know if you kept that in or not, like, for these daytime shows, because they have so many of them, they would degauss and retape over the tapes. (laughs) So I kind of have a side note. In 1969 and 1970, Joplin made three appearances on on Dick Cavett's primetime program, which I'll talk about later. Video was preserved for those and experts have, and excerpts have been included in most documentaries about Joplin. Audio of her 1968 performance has not been used since then. So it existed. It hasn't been used since then. I don't know if it still exists. Sometime in 1968 the band's billing was changed to Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company and the media coverage given to Joplin generated resentment within the band the other members of big brother thought that thought that Joplin was on a star trip while others were telling Joplin that big brother was a terrible band and that she ought to dump them which this is just a fun little side quote Kim France reported in the New York Times article, Nothing Left to Lose, on May 2, 1999, quote, Once she became famous, Joplin, cursed like a truck driver, did not believe in wearing undergarments, was rarely seen without her bottle of Southern comfort, and delighted in playing the role of a sexual predator, which means something different, I think, back then than it does now. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, like, Chris
2: Hansen's going to meet her in a kitchen somewhere and ask her to sit down.
0: No, I think it meant something a little bit different back then. Time magazine called Joplin, quote, probably the most powerful singer to emerge from the white rock movement. And Richard Goldstein wrote for the May 1968 issue of Vogue magazine that Joplin was, quote, the most staggering leading woman in rock. She slinks like tar, scowls like war, clutching the knees of a final stanza, begging it not to leave. Janis Joplin can sing the chic off any listener. Which, what a great quote. That is. Awesome. I like, what is it, slinked like tar? She slinks like tar, scowls, I love that. scowls like war. I love
2: it. I want someone to tell me that I scowl like war. Yeah. Is this, do I look like I'm scowling like war? Hang on. Or is that just more like a battle?
0: You look like you're sleepy.
2: I am sleepy. Well, there you go.
0: For her first major studio recording, Joplin played a major role in the arrangement and production of the songs that would comprise Big Brother and The Holding Company's second album, Cheap Thrills. So good. Oh my God, it's so good. Uh, During the recording sessions produced by John Simon, Joplin was said to be the first person to enter the studio and the last person to leave. Footage of Joplin and the band in the studio shows Joplin in great form and taking charge during the recording for summertime. The album featured a cover design by counterculture cartoonist Robert Crum, which is a really cool looking album. I don't know if you've ever seen this. It's really cool. Although Cheap Thrills sounded as if it consisted of concert recordings, like on Combination of the Two and I Need a Man to Love, Only Ball and Chain was actually recorded in front of a paying audience. The rest of the tracks were studio recordings. The album had a raw quality, including the sound of a drinking glass breaking and the broken shards being swept away during the song Turtle Blues. Cheap Thrills produced very popular hits with Peace of My Heart and Summertime. Together with the premiere of the documentary film Monterey Pop at New York's Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts on December 26, 1968, the album launched Joplin as a star. Cheap Thrills reached number one on the Billboard 200 album chart eight weeks after its release, remaining for eight non-consecutive weeks. The album was certified gold at release and sold over a million copies in the first month of its release. The lead single from the album, "Piece of My Heart, reached number 12 on the Billboard Hot 100 in the fall of 1968. The band made another East Coast tour July through August of 1968, performing at the Columbia Records Convention in Puerto Rico and the Newport Folk Festival. After returning to San Francisco for two hometown shows at the Palace of Fine Arts Festival on August 31st and September 1st, Joplin announced that she would be leaving Big Brother and the holding company. On September 14th, 1968, culminating a three-night engagement together at Fillmore West, fans thronged to a concert that Bill Graham publicized as the last official concert of Janis Joplin with Big Brother and the Holding Company. The opening acts on this night were Chicago, then still called Chicago Transit Authority, and Santana. Like Santana was their opener. (laughs) That was amazing. Right? Chicago and Santana were their openers. That's awesome. Despite Graham's announcement that the Fillmore West gig was Big Brother's last concert with Joplin, the band, with Joplin still as lead vocalist, toured the U.S. that fall. Reflecting uh, Reflecting Joplin's crossover appeal... Two October 1968 performances at a roller rink in Alexandria, Virginia, were reviewed by John Seagraves of the conservative Washington Evening Star at a time when the Washington metropolitan area's hard rock scene was in its infancy. An opera buff at the time, Seagraves wrote, Miss Joplin, in her early 20s, has been for the last year to the vocalist with Big Brother and the Holding Company, a rock quintet of super electric ex- expertise of super electric expertise shortly she will be merely janice joplin a vocalist singing folk rock on her first album as a single whatever she does and whatever she sings she'll do it well because her vocal talents are boundless this is the way she came across in a huge high ceiling roller rink without any acoustics but thankfully a good enough sound system behind her in a proper room, I would imagine there would be no adjectives to describe her. That says a lot. Yeah. like This is a conservative paper. This is an opera guy trying to review a rock band. Like, that's pretty cool. Later that month, Big Brother performed at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and at the Worcester Polytechnic Institute. Aside from two 1970 reunions, Joplin's last performance with Big Brother was at a Chet Helms know that name chet helms chet helms benefit helms is that a chet helms benefit in san francisco on december 1st 1968 after splitting from big brother and the holding company joplin formed a new backup group called the cosmic blues band it's on my (laughs) t-shirt composed of session musicians like keyboardist Steven Ryder and saxophonist Cornelius Snooky Flowers. So that Snooky was not the original Snooky. I love
2: the name Cornelius. Yeah. Because it makes me think of the, uh, the Christmas special, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer.
0: <laughs> Yukon Cornelius. I love Yukon Cornelius. The band was influenced by the Stax Volt record label. Oh, but. The band was influenced by the Stax Volt R&B and soul bands of the 1960s, as exemplified by Otis Redding and the Bar-Kays, which Staxvolt was a record label at the time. Um, so this and the Staxvolt R&B sound was typified by the use of horns and had a funky pop oriented sound in contrast to many of the psychedelic hard rock bands of the of the time. So a little bit different, different sound for her. By early 1969, Joplin was allegedly shooting at least $200 worth of heroin per day, although efforts were made to keep her clean during the recording of I Got Them Old Cosmic Blues Again, Mama.
2: $200 worth of heroin a day?
0: Yes. Gabriel Meckler, who produced Cosmic Blues, told publicist turned biographer, Myra Friedman, after Joplin's death, that she had lived in his Los Angeles house during during the June 1969 recording sessions at his insistence so he could keep her away from drugs and her drug-using friends. Like, basically, he grounded her. (laughs) Good. He basically adult-grounded her to live in his home, which sounds like she needed it. Joplin's appearances with the Cosmic Blues Band in Europe from April through May of 1969 were released in cinemas in multiple documentaries. Janice, which was reviewed by the Washington Post on March 21, 1975, shows Joplin arriving in Frankfurt by plane and waiting inside a bus next to the Frankfurt venue while an American female fan who was visiting Germany, expresses enthusiasm to the camera. No security was used in Frankfurt, so by the end of the concert, the stage was so packed with people, the band members could not even see each other. <laughs> Janice, the documentary, also includes interviews with Joplin in Stockholm and from her visit to London. For her gig at Roy- Oh, sorry. And from her... Janice, the documentary, not the person, also included... Also includes interviews with Joplin in Stockholm and from her visit to London for her gig at Royal Albert Hall. The London interview was dubbed with a voiceover in the German language for broadcast on German television. I don't know what relevance that was, but I left it in. When Joplin and the band performed at Vet's Memorial Auditorium in Columbus, Ohio on Sunday night, May 11th, 1969, Columbus dispatch reviewer John Huddy wrote, frequently suggestive with a series of limited but obvious moves, Miss Joplin wears hip hug- hip-hugging silk bell bottoms and alternates between a wail and a teeth rattling scream. Like Elvis in his pelvis moving days, or Wayne Cochran in his towering hairdo with his towering hairdo, Janice is a curiosity as well as a musical attraction. She cultivates a madam of rock image, lounging against an organ, exchanging profanities with bandsmen, cackling coarsely at private jokes even taking a belt or two while on stage. She also has something to say in her songs about the raw and rudimentary dimensions of sex, love and life. She gets her point across, splitting a few eardrums in the process, opening the Joplin concert where were tea T- garden and Van Winkle an organ drums duo before her concert, Miss Joplin walked into the lobby and watched customers arrived. She was not recognized. Like, I don't even know how that happens, but okay. And I don't know if that review is positive or not. It seems a little... Snarky. Snarky, yeah. <clears throat> On the episode, but again, I think it's more to, like, say, she's super, super high at this point. This is kind of where she's sliding heavy. On the episode of the Dick Cavett show that was telecast in the United States on the night of July 18th, 1969, Joplin and her band performed Try Just a Little Bit Harder. Oh, such a good song. As well as To Love Somebody. As Dick Cavett interviewed Joplin, she admitted that she had a terrible time touring in Europe, claiming the audience there were very uptight and don't, quote, get down. So all of that brings us to Woodstock. The reason for the episode placement where it is, and all that jazz. Happy 50th, Woodstock. Thank you for all of the awesomeness. So we'll have another short set on Woodstock, and we'll get into all that. But to keep us on track and keep us, we're not anywhere near brevity, but uh, to try to help us stay on track here, basically all I'm going to say for context, it was the Woodstock Music and Art Fair was a big music festival and art fair that was held in Bethel, New York from August 15th through the 18th in 1969. Joplin appeared at Woodstock and her performance started at approximately 2 a.m. on Sunday, August 17th, 1969. Joplin informed her band that they would be performing at the concert as if it were just another gig. On Saturday afternoon, when she and The band were flown by helicopter with the pregnant Joan Baez and Baez's mother from a nearby motel to the festival site, and Joplin saw the enormous crowd. She instantly became extremely nervous and giddy. Upon landing and getting off the helicopter, Joplin was approached by reporters asking her questions. She referred them to her friend and sometimes lover, Peggy Caserta, as she was too excited to speak. Initially... Joplin was eager to get on the stage and perform, but was repeatedly delayed as bands were contractually obliged to perform ahead of Joplin. Faced with a 10-hour wait after arriving at the backstage area, Joplin shot heroin and drank alcohol with Caserta, and by the time of reaching the stage, Joplin was three sheets to the wind. During her performance, Joplin's voice became slightly hoarse and wheezy, and she struggled to dance. Because she was... Wasted. Wasted. Joplin pulled through, however, and engaged frequently with the crowd, asking them if they had everything they needed and if they were staying stoned. The audience cheered for an encore to which Joplin replied and sang Ball and Chain. Pete Townsend, who performed with The Who later in the same morning after Joplin finished, witnessed her performance and said the following in his 2012 memoir. She had been amazing at Monterey, but tonight she wasn't at her best, due probably to the long delay and probably, too, to the amount of booze and heroin she'd consumed while she waited. But even Janice on an off night was incredible. Still photographs in color show Joplin backstage with Grace Slick the day after Joplin's performance, wherein Joplin appears to be very happy. Joplin was ultimately unhappy with her performance, however, and blamed Caserta. Her singing was not included by her own insistence, on the 1970 documentary film or the soundtrack for Woodstock music from the original soundtrack and more. Although the 25th anniversary director's cut of Woodstock includes her performance of work me Lord, the documentary film of the festival that was released to theaters in 1970 includes on the left side of a, of a split screen, 37 seconds of footage of Joplin and Caserta walking toward Joplin's dressing room tent. Janice remained at Woodstock for the remainder of the festival Starting at approximately 3 a.m. on Monday, August 18th, Joplin was among many Woodstock performers who stood in a circle behind Crosby, Stills, and Nash during their performance, which was the first time anyone at Woodstock ever had heard the group perform. This information was published by David Crosby in
2: 1988. Uh, Funny thing about Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Um, We went to the last podcast on the left, Mm -hmm. live podcast. And they showed a picture of Crosby, Stills, Nash now. And Henry just, Henry referred to it as the return line at Kohl's. Aww.
0: (laughs) Poor guys. To wrap out Woodstock, later in the morning of August 18th, Joplin and Joan Baez sat in Joe Cocker's van and witnessed Hendrix's close of show performance according to Baez's memoir and a voice to sing with in 1989. At some point in 1969, which I'm sorry, I didn't find a date for this, Columbia Records released Cosmic Blues, the single, which peaked at number 41 on the Billboard Hot 100, and a live rendition of Raise Your Hand was released in Germany and became a top 10 hit there. So Germany did did love Janice. Mm Mm-hmm. Containing other hits like Try Just a Little Bit Harder, To Love Somebody, and Little Girl Blue, I Got Them Old Cosmic Blues Again, Mama, was released in September of 1969, hot on the heels of their Woodstock performance. It reached number five on the Billboard 200 soon after its release and was certified gold later that year, but did not match the success of Cheap Thrills. Reviews of the new group were mixed. but However, the album's recording quality and engineering as well as the musicianship, including three performances by former Bob Dylan Paul Butterfield electric flag guitarist Mike Bloomfield, were considered superior to her previous releases, and some music critics argued that the band was working in a much more constructive way to support Joplin's sensational vocal talents than Big Brother had. Joplin wanted a horn section similar to that featured by the Chicago Transit Authority, and her voice had the dynamic qualities and range not to be overpowered by the brighter horn sound. But again, I mean, that saw some criticism. Some music critics, however, including Ralph J. Gleason of the San Francisco Chronicle, were negative. Gleason wrote that the new band was a drag and Joplin should scrap her new band and go right back to being a member of Big Brother if they'll have her. What a jerk. Other reviewers, such as reporter Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post, generally ignored the band's flaws and devoted entire articles to celebrating the singer's magic. Bernstein's review said that Joplin, quote, has finally assembled a group of first-rate musicians with whom she is totally at ease and whose abilities complement the incredible range of her voice. If they weren't before, her drinking and drug use were becoming more and more noticeable in her performances. In addition to Woodstock... Joplin also had problems at Madison Square Garden in 1969. Biographer Myra Friedman said she witnessed a duet Joplin sang with Tina Turner during the Rolling Stones concert at the Garden on Thanksgiving Day. Friedman said Joplin was, quote, so drunk, so stoned, so out of control that she could have been an institutionalized psychotic rent by mania.
2: So basically she was saying she was so messed up she should be institutionalized? I
0: guess. Let's just go for it. It was
2: 69.
0: Yeah, sure. It was a different time. That's an interesting way to phrase it, but all right. During another Garden concert where she had solo billing on December 19th, some observers believe Joplin tried to incite the audience to riot. For part of this concert, she was joined on stage by Johnny Winter and Paul Butterfield. So just as a side note, Joplin later did an interview with rock journalist David Dalton in June of 1970 about that garden show and said the audience watched and listened to quote every note I sang with, is she going to make it in their eyes in her interview with Dalton? She added that she felt most comfortable performing at small, cheap venues in San Francisco that were associated with the counterculture. So I don't know if this was like her just trying to kind of explain it away of like, Oh, I don't like playing in big crowds. So I had a little bit too much or I don't know. At the time of the interview, She'd already performed in the Bay Area for what turned out to be the last time. Really? Though. Like, that, yeah, that David Dalton interview where she was saying that, like, that would have been her last Bay Area performance would have already happened at that point. Mm. Like.
2: And so it's weird because you start feeling like you're getting closer to the end.
0: Well, but I don't know that she necessarily did. But, you know, so this is kind of where, like, everything is really she's hitting a wall here. Sam Andrew, the lead guitarist who had left Big Brother with Joplin in December 1968 to form Cosmic Blues, quit after their Woodstock performance and returned to Big Brother. At the end of the year, the Cosmic Blues band broke up. Their final gig with Joplin was the one at Madison Square Garden with Winter and Butterfield. And this is where we're going to break. We have taken you all the way from her birth through to 19... through 1969 uh, and on the second part we will basically be focusing on the just the last year of her life which there's there is a lot there guys <laughs> so there's a reason why I split it where I did the next episode is
2: going to be five minutes long yeah no
0: <laughs> there's quite a bit in that last year of her life I mean even though she had a very short career very short life I mean what she did was that she's packed yeah
2: well, I think that was a really well done episode. I I knew nothing about Janice. I absolutely appreciate what I've heard of her, and I don't think that I got the exposure that you did because, again, like my mom would listen to old Motown. Oh, I didn't, and, and so I wasn't I wasn't really uh, exposed to her until basically college. So ninety seven. I didn't either.
0: I wasn't either, because my mom, my mom and dad didn't really listen to her either. Uh, it just wasn't their thing. so I didn't I didn't get into Janice till about 11 years ago yeah. when I well, moved to California. I have a great respect for
2: her, <laughs> and th- that was such good information and it sounded like you did so much digging. so
0: So there, yeah, and there's definitely more out there. like this is scratching the surface, and I figured I had to stop because otherwise we'd end up with an anthology.
2: Well, I look forward to part two, which will be coming out next week. Yes. So thank you guys so much for checking out this week's episode. Make sure to check out part two next week. And then we're going to go into my secret episodes. So I don't everybody think everybody
0: knows they're coming. And-
2: <laughs> so if you guys uh, feel like donating to the show, you think we're doing a good job, uh, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can check us out on Twitter at Rock and Roll LT. Our Facebook is Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at Rock and Roll Heaven LT. And I'm still not saying our website. And you can email us at Rock and Roll Heaven LT at gmail.com. And all of our social stuff and our sources will be in the show notes. Uh, please, if you guys could, please head over to uh, iTunes and give us a rating and review. It helps us make the show better. It helps and, people find us. Yep. And, uh, Other than that, I hope you guys have a fantastic weekend. Keep rocking in the free world. Tracy.
0: Yeah.
2: Can you drive me to the airport? No. Wow. Okay.
0: But I can play you some really kick-ass Joplin songs.
2: (laughs) All right. Sounds good. (laughs) All right, guys. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.